1: I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Derek Wellington Johnson's background brings a unique perspective to the subjects of great leadership, strategic thinking, and self-discipline. His father served with General George Patton in World War II, so you can imagine that, that had a lot of influence on him, and you can say that leadership and strategy is literally in his blood. He is a military veteran, a startup veteran, and a lifelong student of human nature and history. He cut his teeth working for Brian Tracy, the renowned motivational public speaker and self-development author, and has led sales teams for both established companies and bleeding edge startups. His book is The Wisdom of Leaders, History's Most Powerful Leadership Quotes, Ideas and Advice, and I highly recommend it. I love that book. I got an early copy of it and I can't recommend it enough, so go grab one and go check out his awesome content on Hardcore Leaders at Instagram and also on TikTok. Give us what your TikTok is, by the way, before I forget. Yeah, it's a Derek W. Johnson. Just make it easy. Beautiful, yeah. I have uh, not yet ventured into that.
0: This has been a long time coming. Thank you for being here today, my friend. I'm so excited to be here. You have no idea. Your your story has inspired me from, gosh, however many years ago. I, I got your book and all that. And actions, not words. I don't think there's like a, a week that doesn't go by that I, I mentioned that to someone in some capacity. So thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm a huge fan of yours. Well, thank you for being here. And we've been in the leadership world, we've been in
1: the personal development world, we've been in entrepreneurial worlds, and we see that that's what is the missing link for everybody. Everybody wants to get seed money. Everybody wants to have a business plan. Everybody wants to talk about this business model. It looks great on paper, but everybody waits. Everybody steps back. Oh, I don't have sales. Oh, I don't have this. Oh, I'm afraid to lead. I'm afraid to say that. So before we get into that, tell us about why it's so important for people to step up as leaders and why we
0: need leaders even more now than we ever have in history. We're living in some strange times, and that's an understatement. But leadership has always been an important thing because you're either going to end up being a leader or going to be a follower. At some point, as an individual, you have to say to yourself, I want to have an affect on the world about me. Now, I'm not saying it has to be on a global level, but the affect starts internally, right? You. Can you lead yourself? Can you lead your own mind? And then it goes outside from that your family can you lead your family can you be a good shepherd of, of your family and then from there it goes even wider to your society right your your community and then it goes into your whatever organization you work with whether it's in a private sector or in law enforcement or in the military but someone is going to lead one way or another and a lot of times and and i know you'll appreciate this that someone could not be fit for leadership and so Nature abhors a vacuum. If there's a void, someone will step up to fill it. And what we want is we want some people who have self-awareness who will step up and fill that void because I mentioned this earlier, no one's coming to save us. That's a thousand percent correct. I absolutely agree. And
1: again, if you put two people in a situation and both of them are natural followers, eventually if there's enough adversity, one of them will step forward. Maybe not because they're qualified, but because they're like, shit, nobody's taking the initiative.
0: I got to fucking do something or we're just going to drown here. Yeah. And the thing is, it's a lot of times it's the wrong person who steps up just because you have confidence doesn't mean you know what the fuck you're doing. That's the reality. So what we need is we need people to step up when we look. And I assume most of your audience is an American audience, right? I'm sure you have other speaking countries. But when you look at the founding fathers of Jefferson, Hamilton, George Washington, and Ben Franklin, all those guys, and you think that the population of the U S around that time was total, the 13 colonies was somewhere around 1.6, 1.8 million. Right. And you think about those great thinkers who came about. I mean, if you read some of their letters, they're tremendously eloquent people, big thinkers. I'm thinking, all right, well, we need the next generation of the Washingtons and the Jeffersons and the Franklins and and the Lincolns. And I'm thinking, okay, population of what, 370 million people, where's the next generation of leaders?
1: Most of the time they're sitting back there in the wings waiting for either permission or encouragement.
0: And the reality is you will get neither until it no longer matters. If you're waiting for someone to come and anoint you with a magic wand or knight you with a sword, you're going to wait until you die. And that's never going to happen. Anoint yourself and do the inner work. And one of the things I love about you, the work you've done, podcasts, what have you, is you encourage people to do their inner work
1: first. Yeah, they have to have that. If they don't have that foundation, again, all leadership begins with self-leadership. Why would I ask somebody to follow me if I can't even lead myself?
0: Right. And it starts with you because I think what's interesting is and again, if you've ever been in the military or imagine law enforcement, you know you and I both were in the military and it's like, this is the rank and this is the dude above you. And no matter what they say, you have to follow. And if you're dealing with someone who's incompetent, that is a long, painful ordeal. So part of doing the inner work is you want to learn how to control your own inner state, your mind, and then you can guide the minds of others because essentially leadership is what? It's a fixed goal to get to a certain place a certain way. And if you can't control your own, your interstate, your own mind, there's no way you're going to be successful in helping guide the minds of a a group. I don't care if it's 550 or 5,000. So it starts with you. It
1: absolutely does. And leadership has been, as we alluded to in the intro, with your history, with your father, it's really been literally in your DNA. Can you tell us about what it was like to grow
0: up in that kind of regalia? I was born very late in my father's life. My father was a World War II vet. He served with General Patton. Uh, He was a tank commander. He almost never talked about the war. My dad was not much of a drinker, but he would have a glass of wine every now and again. And then, and as a young kid, I was really curious about his experience in the war, right? So I would wait till he'd had a glass or two of wine. Then I'd ask him a couple of questions. He'd be very guarded. For example, like I asked him one time, I was like, dad, you have this gash in your elbow. And so he had like this, about a two inch diameter scar on his elbow. And I was asking him about that. And actually that wasn't, you know, I didn't think I was going to get an answer about the war. And he says, well, we were going to rescue a group and it was a German winter. And we outran our supply lines. We ran out of fuel and we ran out of ammunition and we were fighting Germans on top of our tanks with knives. I'm like, holy shit. And I said, so what's that scar from dad on your elbow? And he says, well, I got stabbed by the German knife. I'm like, and what happened? And there's like this pause. He says, well, I'm here and he's not. Wow. And I'm like, whoa. So my father did that, came back to the States. I'll give you the abbreviated version. Things didn't go too well for him when he got back, didn't like the way he was treated when he got back. And so he ended up going back to Europe and very long story, but he became a mercenary for north of a decade. Wow! And he fought in places like the, what used to be called the Belgium Congo and places like that. So around the early sixties, he realized that being a mercenary wasn't conducive with being a family man. And he became an entrepreneur, right? And got into other things. So he had a lot of connections globally, and what have you. But growing up in that environment where I was around some really hard men because my father was a hard man. My godfather was mobbed up. So when you're a kid, though, you think this is normal, but you're around these very intense people, these intense men. And my father was a leader. He was a leader as a tanker man in World War II. He, he led a mercenary team when he was a mercenary. And so he was also the de facto leader in our family. But here's the thing that's interesting though, right? It wasn't like tyrannical or something. One of the things that stayed with me about him was that we would have time to time like family meetings and even as a little kid he asked my opinion and he said something to the effect of you know out of the mouth of babes come words of wisdom and so yes he was the leader yet even me at the age of whatever 10 11 12 13 my father died by the way around 16 of cancer but i got input and and that impacted me because to be a leader doesn't mean you have all the answers and it doesn't mean you're going to assume that your way is the only way and it it struck me something interesting that he wanted my input regardless of me being a little kid because he figured I might have some fresh eyes or a unique aspect or vision or viewpoint that he didn't have and made me feel important. So that, that really framed part of my thoughts on leadership at a young age. Seeing that's so powerful
1: because we talk about leadership, especially in an entrepreneurial level, you have a hundred million dollar company. If I'm talking to that CEO and he has this ego thinking he has all the answers, it's fucking impossible to have all the answers. You're just blinded. You have no clue.
0: What do they call that? Dunning-Kruger? The yeah, factor syndrome, exactly. right? right? The people who don't know actually have the most confidence. And the people who do know are actually apprehensive about jumping in. I lead a team in the tech sector in sales. I've been doing that for many, many years. And one of the things I do when I have a new hire, like usually we'll start with like an inside salesperson who's junior in the sales world. And after they've been with the company 30 days, I have a one-on-one meeting with them. And I say, okay, what have you seen that we could do better? It doesn't matter that kids may be a couple years out of college or whatever. It's you have fresh eyes and you might have a viewpoint that we're not aware of. And you have to leave your ego outside because if you think you know it all, then you're, you're done. You're so done. I mean, you mentioned at the top of our call here, it's being a perpetual student of human nature and life and leadership and all those things. But that is the big part of leadership is being open-minded to, to ideas of other people. Well, and by letting that person speak, they feel heard. Yeah. They
1: have buy-in now because if you listen to anything that they say, they automatically imagine that that input is going to have some sort of impact on the planning, right? So now they're more willing to want to do that. If anybody's ever read Jocko's work or heard any of his podcasts, I mean, that's exactly what they talk about where they say, what do you think? What would you do? Or the whole Tom Bilyeu idea when I was out at his place, he was very much like Jocko, where he was very quiet. He was away from this team. And if they had a problem, they would come to him directly. But when they had something, he was like this, this, and this, but he was very much at this idea of empowering them to try to figure it out, but also understanding what the standard and expectation was, which actually it emboldened
0: them even more to want to step into that role. In leadership, there's command and control, as you know, which is the standard hierarchy of you know, going down from top to bottom. And then there's commander's intent, which is the commander or the boss or CEO, whomever team leader will say, I need you to accomplish X. And how you get there is up to you. And it's interesting because actually General Patton said that. He said, you know, never tell your subordinates exactly how to do something. Let them decide how to do it. Tell them what you want done and you will be surprised. And now I'm quoting directly, you will be surprised with their ingenuity. And so that goes back to that too, in terms of trying to give them that freedom. where you, Not only are you empowering them, but you also give them agency. When you give someone agency, they feel more vested in the outcome. So that's a way of inspiring people, and motivating them without you having to crack the whip. Leadership comes in two forms. You either can light a fire underneath someone or you can ignite a fire from within someone. And guess which has better results? Yeah. And which one's more sustainable? And that's key. Yes. Sustainability is a big one. So I was leading a team during the whole COVID thing. Again, high tech sales. And for us, it was like, oh, my God, the world was, you know, for them, it was like the world is stopping what's going on. They're freaking out. By the way, most of our teams are national, right? So they got on airplanes a lot. They're traveling. And now that rug got pulled from underneath them. Part of leadership is, and this actually ties into this authentic leadership, and, and I'm going to probably piss some people off here, right? Good. That's why we're doing this. I think authentic leadership is bullshit. Before people who are gasping, turn this off. Let me explain what I mean. Authentic leadership, essentially the way I understand it, means you always show up and you're always real and and transparent about what's going on. You're feeling this and the other. Okay. And here's why I think it's bullshit. When COVID first hit, I was deeply concerned. Initially, our revenues went off a cliff. And when you're in in a leadership position, you get to hear, see the numbers from your chief financial officer. And you're talking to the CEO and they're like, look, if we don't get these numbers up, we're going to have to lay off people. That's tough. Because you're taught, you know, these people, you know, they have families and kids and all that stuff. You're like, man, if they get laid off now, good luck finding a job in the midst of this madness, right? Was I disturbed inside? I wasn't freaking out, but I was definitely concerned. I never, ever, ever let my team know that. The message was, we're going to figure this out. We're going to stick together. We're going to rally. We're going to outmaneuver, outwit and kick ass and beat our competition. And we did actually. Now, at the end of 2020, we actually grew. But if I had been transparent, I was like, shit, guys, I don't know. It's looking pretty ugly. And I got in a a knockdown drag out fight with one of my fellow executives in the company because he actually was telling people that. I don't know, man, it's looking pretty bad. I think we're going to have to do some layoffs. And I lost my mind on him because I said, what are you doing? And and sure enough, there's some people calling me and I have to talk them off the ledge because now they're like starting to put their resume out trying to get a job elsewhere. So authentic leadership is bullshit because... As a leader, you have to show up every day whether you f- don't feel like show up I don't care if you you're sick as a dog, you're dealing with some personal strife, you have to show up and be strong for your team. so yeah, has there been some times when when you don't show up where you don't want to show up, you still have to figure it out.
1: that's everything. and when people say you know you have to lead by example, it's like you're constantly leading by example, whether you're aware of it or not. So my team, anybody that I'm leading, whether it be directly or vicariously. If they see me even one day with my feet yeah, kicked up on done. The, the desk, even if I'm sick, even if I am like didn't get any sleep and there's been an emergency, if they see that, that to them is going to be the highest standard in their mind and they will never operate to what my highest standard is. They're just going to always remember in their mind, well, there was that time Marcus had his feet kicked up and he had his hands back behind his neck, even though he, whatever the, the justification was at the moment.
0: Yeah, we do lead by example, and that's really important, you know. So, so this team that I'm leading now for this high tech company, they're a seasoned team for the most part. But you, know, one of the things that I did when I first got on board was because we're, we're a technical company, I got what, three, four certifications, technical certifications, because the team's expected to have those. And I took, I went through all the tests and studying on. It's, it's some really high end networking technology stuff, right? It's really tough. And they took all the tests, what have you, to show the team that. I, I understand the technology myself i know the time it took to get this certification you have to squeeze it in between your sales calls and your meetings all that stuff and during our weekly team meetings i flashed up my certifications on the screen so so it wasn't me just saying i'm like here's this one and here's this one and here's that one they're done and i could tell there was like this long pause or like oh okay okay this guy's legit i did that in the first three months because part of the issue that our upper management was frustrated with was that In the tech world, you get certain discounts based on how many people get certifications, right? So that was part of it. The other part, though, is you actually want to be a trusted advisor to your customers. And if you don't walk the walk, you shouldn't be talking the talk. But from a leadership perspective, it's leading by example. Did I have to take all those tests? Absolutely not. Did it take time out of my day? Absolutely. But I did it, and it quickly earned me some respect. Yeah, and the ROI is you can't even measure how much that
1: keeps coming back and serving you and, and helping you in the process. Our own leadership is what often will save our ass in the process if we are willing to invest in our people and, and have that aggressive
0: patience in the process of teaching. I'm really big on training. I think it was, was it a Greek? Archilochus who said, we don't rise to the level of expectation. We fall to our level of training. And so I'm a fanatic on training, sales training, sales methodology, obviously the technical aspects, right? Because if you're competing, especially to your entrepreneurs, business owners, and your audience, if you're competing in this ferociously competitive world, and more importantly, this volatile, uncertain world that we live in, we're going from the COVID lockdown to supply chain issues to the feds now raising rates every time you turn around. And if your people aren't trained to the highest level, again, we don't rise to our level of expectations. We fall to our level of training. They're going to get crushed they're going to get absolutely crushed. So yeah, training, training, concentrating is a big thing.
1: It absolutely is. And you made an interesting point before we hit record, talking about leadership and talking about asking the question of nature versus nurture. Are you born a leader? Do you learn it? And you had
0: a, a really interesting, I never heard it before. So tell us a little bit about this. So we've talked about that, right? The whole argument about are leaders born? Are they made? What is it? And I was like, really curious about that. And I went down the rabbit hole. And I came across this fascinating long-term meta study done on leadership, and they studied twins for a period of decades, a couple of decades, I believe. And I don't know how they did this, and man, it's it's some brilliant thinking. They were able to isolate, they called the, the leadership gene in our sequence, in a genomic sequence. But here's the, the interesting part. Only 30% of people have that leadership gene, which means that 70% of leaders out there are self-made. That means that everyone who can hear our voice Guess what? If you don't think you were, quote unquote, a born leader, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you put in the work, you have the self awareness and you strive to better yourself, even 1% every day consistently, you're going to be that leader. And here's the other part. I think that
1: in some ways, that being that 70% that's not a, a natural leader, in some ways, is an advantage because, just like you said, you're going to have the work ethic, you're going to have the desire to accumulate skill sets. Okay, we talk about the military, right? You get a bunch of new young bucks in the room. They're all studs. They're all the top in their class and wherever they came from, high school, college, whatever it is. But when they're all in that room, there's going to be some that are natural PT studs. But when they're actually pushed, they fall apart because they are used to just already doing it well. The other ones that are willing to have the work ethic, that don't give up, that are tenacious and salty about it, they're the ones that are going to be there next to you whenever you need it the
0: most. Yeah, there's a lot to be said about that. So I was in the Navy. So enlisted Navy and was a medic. Loved that. And actually was attached to Marines for a little bit. And then I I got this wild hair and I I wanted to go to BUDS to be a SEAL, basic underwater demolition SEAL. So full transparency. I didn't graduate. I'm I'm not a SEAL and all that stuff. But what was really cool about the experience was that I learned a lot. And so I got to see BUDS from two perspectives, right? Because I was a medic. And so I got there early and I I did some assisting with the previous class, Hell Week. I think it was class, I'm trying to remember now, I think it was class 193 and I was in class 194, right? I'm old. This is a long time ago. And I got to see, to your point, you mentioned the PT studs, right? And there were a couple of guys, if I recall, who had done like the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon, which is what, like 26 mile run, 100 mile bike ride. And I think it's a three mile swim or something or five mile swim, I forget now. Those guys rang the bell and quit. During Hell Week. And it floored me, right? Because so, you know, again, my job there was just to do some, just a a little bit of oversight because they didn't have enough medics, what have you, or corpsman. I was a corpsman. It was really interesting. And guys who you weren't so sure would make it, those guys had this tenacity and they just refused to quit. It was fascinating. When I went through it, I didn't get to Hell Week, but I was in motorcycle accident and blew out my back and that was it. But the time that I was at Bubs was fascinating because you do have a lot of studs that show up. But it's not just about your physical prowess. It's, it's what you have in your heart. You know, in Buds, they call it fire in the belly or fire in the gut. And that's a good reminder that, again, if you don't think that you are, quote unquote, a stud, whatever the hell that you interpret that to mean, it doesn't matter if you're tenacious, if you refuse to quit. When the dust settles, you might be surprised that you're going to be one of the few still standing. And I've also found that
1: in my life, the situations where it feels like it's like, holy shit, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. We had that moment. And I can either capitulate and give up now because I thought that I did everything that I needed to do. But that's the very nature of this training. It's going to push you physically, psychologically from a teamwork component, understanding am I worrying about the guy next to me or am I worrying about myself and just having a pity party because it's tough for me. It's tough for all of us. We're all cold. We're all wet. We're all miserable. We're all chafed. That's the idea. So understanding that in that moment, you still have a decision. Am I going to continue to embrace this and say, you know what, I'm not going to quit.
0: This is harder than I thought it was going to be. So what? I'm already here. Let's go. So you bring up two points and I like to bring a third, right? So to your point, we're all miserable. There's going to be times we're all miserable and going back to flashback to cold, wet, Sandy and shaved and you're miserable. And if you're quitting because your mind gives up on you, that's horrible because you will suffer that for the rest of your life. You know, there's, there's a couple of guys at Bud's who had serious stress fractures in their legs, meaning they were, their legs were broken and they refused to ring the bell they were medically dropped. And that tenacity is a whole different mindset than I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm miserable, I just want to go home. But from a leadership perspective, if you show up and do everything that you expect from your team and more, they're going to have the respect for you. Now, the next component of that is testing yourself as a leader. What does that mean? Like testing yourself physically, testing yourself mentally. Yes, whatever your job is, whatever you do, your occupation, you have to show up and be the example that others strive to be. However, when you're not at work or whatever it is that you do, you also need to test yourself. I'm big on obstacle course races. I love Spartan races. And I did all back, I did a race in Big Bear. And I don't know if you've ever been to Big Bear, but it's, it's the air is very thin because it's very high altitude. And essentially when it's not wintertime, when they're not ski slopes, it's steep, right? And I'm, by the way, I'm 54, right? So I did this, this one, what, a uh, year before, like 15 months ago, I think it was. And I show up for this thing and I did train but I wasn't prepared for how the thin air was going to hit me. Just so you know, I'm 6'4 and about 265. So I'm, I'm not dainty. <laughs> that thin air messed me up. And I just literally put my head down and, and just took one foot in front of the other and kept on going. And I was like, I'm either going to die here on a heart attack or I'm finishing this fucking race. And I got a lot of shit from my wife about that later. That's all the conversation. <laughs> but you have to be able to dig deep and whether whatever you do on a triathlon, a bike racing, a marathon, trail running, obstacle course race, doesn't matter what it is. Periodically, you, you really need to do something that really tests you and test your mental fortitude to make sure you still have it, that you know what it takes to dig deep. And then when you dig deep, you know that when you get in a situation at work in your career path where everything's falling apart, you know you have it within you to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's the key.
1: There's this tendency for us as humans, people know my story, you know my story, but there was a part of me that once that happened, it was like a child touching a hot stove and I wanted to get away from it. Okay. Now I'm away from this adversity. I'm able to finally begin to recover. I've done physical therapy, occupational therapy. I'm in the civilian sector now. But then it's like, now what do I do? I had to come back and find something to tether me to that, to keep me honest, to keep me in genuine gratitude, not the bullshit gratitude, to keep me in this sphere, to be able to continue to move forward. And that's what builds that belief. It's like, Even no matter what people think about David Goggins, it's like, listen, that
0: guy's easiest day was yesterday. He's a stud, by the way. I see him out here because I live in Vegas and we're neighbors. He may have moved because I haven't seen him in a while, but I've bumped into him out in the desert running. So he's legit. Yeah, he's legit. And that's the idea. It's like, okay, yesterday was the easy day. I have
1: to keep pushing. And when you hear him, he's like, man, there's days I don't want to do it. There's absolutely days whenever I procrastinate. And that's what I want everybody to understand. It's like when people say, again, oh, this is a natural leader or this person's been a leader for a while or this person's successful in this. Those people have a hard every day and they still choose to show up. And that's what puts them in the position to lead like that and to win.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's this myth that certain people just are immune to pain and suffering, whatever they're not. They just choose to push through it. You know, going back to that, that race, that Spartan race I did in Big Bear, it was unseasonably cold. And the start of the race is 8 a.m. It was 32 degrees. And I'm like, I hate cold weather. I really do. So it's thin air, it's cold. I'm like, oh shit. What did I get myself into? But you keep moving. But that's what gives you the strength to go through adversity. Life's gonna throw with you, right? Which takes us to a concept called volitional suffering. Volition, meaning of your own accord. Suffering, everyone knows what that means. Here's the thing. In life, you're gonna suffer no matter what, but choose how you're going to suffer. Let's use okay, we're getting to uh we're just right around the quarter from, from New Year's Eve, everyone's gonna get their New Year's resolutions. All right. Let's say you put on weight during the holidays. Your clothes don't fit right. You feel sluggish. You're lethargic. Maybe your, your partner doesn't think you're as sexy as you used to be. Whatever it is, right? Aren't you suffering? Of course. Embark on a workout regimen. Start pulling back on the booze. their starchy carbohydrates. Start getting your ass out of bed and go for a walk in the morning. Run. Whatever it is. Are you suffering? Yeah, but the suffering means something. If you're choosing how you suffer, and it means something. It's going to lead to something positive. Volitional suffering choose how you're going to suffer. If you're going to suffer, make it count for something. Yeah, we get a huge ROI on, like you said, if you go outside, what are you doing?
1: Sunlight, exposure, cardio. If you go for a walk with your husband or your dog or your wife or whomever you go with, now you have that time together. If you take the dogs out with you, like you're checking 11 different boxes if you're willing to look at it like that. You're getting all that impact in a positive manner. But like you said, sitting there with this psychological, just trying to move away from it, oh, this sucks, I, I hate my life, oh, let me scroll through social media to uh, artificially pacify me. That's so easy to do. My wife
0: will bust my chops, and i are you doom scrolling again? I'm <laughs> no, like, no. I'm not. <laughs> Throw the phone to the side. I know what you're talking about. But you bring up a really good point about being out in nature, so I'm really blessed in that where I live, I'm literally 300 yards from the mountains, right? So I'm in Las Vegas, but I'm on the outskirts of Vegas, so I'm close enough to the airport for work, but I walk out 300 yards, I'm in the mountains. Going back to the leadership thing, in terms of we get pummeled with so much on a day to day basis that it just wears us down. That being out in nature, I can talk about it all day, but until you actually go out somewhere in nature by yourself, secluded, and whether it's a forest, for me, it's a desert mountains, but to have that solitude for, I would recommend at least once a week to recharge your batteries. Because again, here's the thing about being in a leadership position, right? And, and you probably already know this. So our brains, utilize 25% of all the glucose and oxygen our bodies consume, 25%, just your brain. This little gray, maybe four pound thing in your head consumes 25% of all the oxygen and glucose we consume. So when you're a leader, you make a lot of decisions. And the higher you are up in the leadership world, the harder the decisions are that you have to make, which means you use more cognitive processing power which will wipe you out at the end of the day. It will destroy you by a Friday afternoon if you're a standard Monday through Friday. And it's really easy to sit on your couch and veg out or be on social media or watch mindless TV. I'm not saying there's not a place for that to a certain extent. what I'm saying is that if you don't take care of your tool, sharpen your blade, if you will, you're gonna get wrecked. And, And my preferred thing is to go out in nature to be alone to, and there's something about to your point about being in nature. I don't know if it's a fresh air, if it's a solitude, no electronics. I mean, yeah, I have my phone with me for emergencies. But as a leader, you have to, you have to get that downtime because we have this grind mentality and rise and grind and no days off. And, and I'm saying, whoa, you need to take time to sharpen your blade. I don't care how badass a samurai warrior you are, but those they spend a lot of time sharpening their blades, right? And so the ability to take downtime is also an important component of leadership. Cause remember, too, as a leader, By the time decisions come to you, there are no good decisions left because the easy decisions get done early by your subordinates, if you will, right? Or your other team members. So by the time the decisions come to you, any decision you make is going to suck. We use so much cognitive processes to work out through the game playing of, okay, if we do this decision, you have to go through like 50 moves ahead of what set of dominoes get pushed over in this situation versus this situation, which one's going to hurt us the least or gain us the most. And that's exhausting. So part of being a good leader is also taking the downtime to let your brain regenerate, let your body heal up. We have to intentionally
1: cultivate that empty space to have that ability to recover. Just like what you're saying, that cognitive fatigue is very real. Josh Waitzkin, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast. One of the, probably the top peak performance coach out there. Emily Kwok, trained with him for a long time. I have interviews with her. She's a great friend. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion, performance coach. And Josh's whole idea is this idea that figure out what you did wrong and then try not to do that again. So if we're doing jujitsu and you pass my guard and I'm sitting here pissed off because you passed and now I'm not reacting, I'm not responding, and now you've already got my back. The mistake that I made, I shouldn't be sitting here trying to fight the choke. Oh, like a warrior. Oh, I'm just going to go out or trap out. It's like, no, just tap because the mistake you made was three moves ago. Go back, figure out what this is. Stop making that the choke point. Stop falling there. So that now we don't come into that situation over and over again. People talk about the gift of adversity. They're like, what about these people that are in all this hardship? I was like, sometimes the lesson from adversity is not to get yourself in the situation again.
0: There's a quote something in effect that a clever man figures out his problem, but a wise man avoids it altogether, right? Something to that effect. And you said something about your mistake was three moves ago. It's interesting because in the startup world, I saw that a lot where they were like in panic mode because the numbers weren't where they wanted to be and and they're starting to freak out. And I'm thinking, no, man, nothing you're going to do right now is going to impact us in a meaningful way because you made the mistake three moves ago. And it's interesting because Jeff Bezos, there's a great quote where he says something to the effect of when we get congratulated for a great quarter, it's because of things we did three years ago. I asked my people, and it's from Tim
1: Ferriss. Okay, let's say that it's 2025. Your company has failed. What happened?
0: Oh, I love that. It's a pre Exactly. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do that every quarter with my team. So the pre-mortem is just what you said. It's we failed. Why did we fail? And you ask every member in the team. What I usually like to do is I'll have them do it separately because a lot of times they influence each other, but I'll, I'll do the pre-mortem and say, okay, in this case, you know, we're coming up in January, right? Do the pre-mortem. We failed. Why? And have a one-on-one with your individual members of your team and then get everyone together and have them present their findings. And it's a really great session because we talk a lot about postmortems, which is also important. When we lose, and again, I do this with my team all the time, when we lose a large deal and I'm talking like north of seven figures, right? I want to know why you just lost a $2 million deal that we were in the top two to win. What happened? And we go through step-by-step step, and then to your point, the lessons learned. But yeah, I'm a big fan of pre-mortem and the postmortem. And, like you say, if we're thinking about two years ahead from now, what does that
1: do? That shows that puts a really bright light on what we're doing inefficiently right now. Because, like you say, it will take that long before that comes to fruition, or by the time it's out of our control, and now we're just trying to do damage control in the process.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because, again, going back to like, so the world's moving so quickly, and we're being thrown with so many things. And there's this legendary strategist named Colonel John Boyd, and his nickname was 42nd Boyd. He was an Air Force pilot ace. His nickname, 42nd Boyd, was because he could. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Maverick, Top Gun, or whatever, but imagine this in your mind. He could be in a disadvantaged position, meaning he could have a jet on his ass and within 40 seconds outmaneuver you and blow you out of the sky. And so John Boyd created what's called the OODA loop, which you may have heard of. Observe, orient, decide, act. And we could do a whole show just on that because I think it's fascinating. But the basic premise of his strategies is whoever can adapt the fastest survives. And that's one of the things I think that's lacking in most businesses and most organizations, and that the ability to adapt quickly to any given scenario. And if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a business person, your ability to get into the, the OODA loop faster than everyone else, especially your competitors, means you'll win. Conversely, if you don't, you're going to lose. We see it all the time, whether it be in a
1: relationship where people are going through the five stages of acceptance, they're like in denial and they, they can live in denial for months, even decades, right? And in business, You
0: don't last that long. You don't have that luxury. No, you don't. And so the ability to adapt and change quickly is really important. So one of the ways I like to do that sometimes is I think I'll red team. And so when we have some presentations, we'll say, okay, you're going to be red team and you have to poke holes and whatever anyone says today and be relentless. Because I've noticed that if you don't give someone permission to be that quote unquote that asshole, the devil's advocate or the red team as we, as we give it. People are afraid to step on toes. And again, there's politics involved here, right? There's egos involved here. But man, ego gets people killed. Absolutely will. In business, it will cause you to get bankrupt. In a life or death
1: situation, it will cause people to get killed. It will. And it, it comes down to that idea of accepting the reality right now, not hoping it will change, not preferring it to be something different, not playing the victim
0: and saying, why is this happening? I'm a good person. That doesn't serve you. And there's doubling down on what you did that's wrong. And I think, and again, this is from my startup experience, but what what I saw a lot was they were doing things that weren't working. And then they said, well, let's just do more of that and do it faster. So wrap your brain around the mentality of someone. And I'm talking, these are VCs. These are startups that are funded with 50, 100 million dollars of venture capital money. And the leadership is saying, well, what we're doing isn't working. Let's just double down, do more, which is, I mean, they weren't saying it, but essentially they were saying, well, we need to do more meetings and our sales guys need to travel more. I'm thinking, yeah, but you're not talking about is the messaging hitting the right person? Is it the right message for the right person? And and so on and so forth. And they're ignoring the key issues that should be brought to bear rather than saying, well, let's just do more of the wrong things. It's mental. Yeah, it's the definition of insanity. And in fighting,
1: we learned, right? Speed is a bad substitute for accuracy when, when you're in a gunfight. And that's exactly what it is. Slowest move, smoothest fast. That's the way to do it. And like you said, especially when they're at the very top and they have ego and they think everybody's watching everything that they do, they have to be right. The CEO's job is not to be right. The CEO's job is to listen to everybody and find the correct answer and then start making that and execute on it, not sitting there and saying, I came up with the right answers. If you have more than four people in your business, it's impossible for you to know the semantics and idiosyncrasies of every aspect of your business. That's why you have people in those positions. Are you paying them? Let them earn their fucking
0: money. Yeah. In the startup world, I saw that. So there was one startup that I wish I could say names. I won't, but they were funded by some big people. And the CTO was such an egotistical ass that essentially he would never hire anyone who he thought was smarter than him. And what should have been a tremendous startup that should have gone either public or got acquired just crashed and burned because of this one person's ego. And that's the thing that, that we see. Ego will get people killed or destroy businesses time and time and time again. And this is the, the power and the necessity for real, genuine leadership in
1: a real way, not the, the fake, genuine leadership.
0: Yeah, because, you know, so for me being a sales leader. I'm in one of the few positions where every month, hell, every day, you can see the scoreboard of our sales, where they need to be, are they higher, below, whatever. My job really is to eliminate friction for the team and to remove obstacles of any sort. And I mean, I do a lot of other things, but you'd be amazed at how much of management actually prevents people from doing their jobs.
1: And how many people do we know that come up to us and say, I want to lead or I want to be a leader, but I'm not in a leadership position.
0: What would you tell them? You don't need a title to be a leader. You don't need a title to be a leader. And I've been in these scenarios as well. So there's leadership by authority and there's leadership by position, right? So leadership by position is you have the title. And then there's leadership by authority, meaning if people see you, they know that you show up, you do what you say you're going to do, when you say you're going to do it, how you say you're going to do it. You're an example for the team. By those virtues, you are a leader and people will follow you. And one of the promotions I got into leadership was by that very instance, where I didn't have the title, but I was getting things done that needed to be done. And a lot of people saw that I was getting things done. And I caused a lot of issues, but I ended up getting promoted over this other person without even there being a job opening or anything, because I got the job done. And mind you, this wasn't an ego thing. It was, this guy is getting in the way of us making more money. I'm going to get these things done. And I had people following me over more and more people over a period of time. So you want to be a leader of authority. Now, if you can be a leader of authority and position, you're golden, but you don't need a title to be a leader. We're talking
1: about startups. I've got friends that have been in situations where they had the startup, they have all the seed money and the burn rate is only going to last for six months. So if they would have told them the rest of the team, what was going on, like you said, they would have drove it off a cliff. They were able to pull it out and they were able to succeed exponentially. But in that moment, they had to make the right decision, understanding what was important as opposed to... Being this place where, oh, I'm just going to be transparent and give everybody this knowledge because it's not going to serve them. It's going to disempower them if nothing else.
0: The lack of strategic thinking is really interesting to me in startups and in most organizations because, you know, there's a great book written a long time ago called Blue Ocean Strategy, and it ties into some of the stuff that Sun Tzu said, right? And the, the gist of it is, is red ocean is where all the sharks are tearing each other apart for the chum and the ocean is red with blood. And that's where most people fight and die, if you will, in terms of metaphorically speaking. Blue Ocean is where you're like, hey, let's create a new category and a new place that hasn't been served, and let's see what we can do here. You could look at Netflix or Airbnb. Netflix created a whole, they didn't take on Blockbuster. They're like, let's do, let's do something different. Yeah, they made them obsolete. Completely, Right. You know, you look at Uber or Lyft or Airbnb, they decide, okay, you know, Airbnb said, we're not taking on Sheraton, the Hiltons of the world. They create some difference. So I think from a startup mentality, or even if you're in an existing organization, if you're like fighting for the leftovers and quote unquote, the red ocean, you might want to rethink your, your business strategy. Have you read Niche down, Christopher Lockhead? I have not. It's great, but I've had him on shows before and
1: his premise is this, it's that, again, like you said, you want to create this category, you want to be the first one in it, you don't have to be perfect. You need to be the first one there because once you've established that and you're the king or queen of that category, you're going to get 75% of that pie, irrespective of how good or bad the next people come that are trying to take you out because you've already established the authority. You were the, the brand, so to speak. And the idea is when people are trying to knock you off that pedestal,
0: they're trying to hit the six-month-old version of you when you've already evolved. yes. Right, which goes back to John Boyd's OODA loop, right? About going through that loop faster than the you know, competition. And what's interesting is, yeah, you know, so the Blue Ocean Strategy is a really good book. The premise is really sharp. But if you go back to Sun Tzu's, The Art of War, he was saying the same thing. What was that? 2,000 years ago or something, right? Yep, and that's right out of the Tao De Ching from Taoism, right? I mean, you're talking about hitting someone where they're strong. No, that's insane. But you see a lot of companies do that. And you see, politically speaking, that would be
1: suicide. It's really hard to stop that train once it's already moving the idea is to either derail it or just avoid it in the first place so you don't get stuck. There you go, yeah. We've talked about a lot of things and we talked about how we need adversity to help us level up, especially in the times we don't think we can. And you talked about Big Bear doing that that race. Can you tell us about another time in your life when it felt like you were facing adversity that was insurmountable and that you would never get through it, but once you were able to persevere, when you look back on it, you realize that without that, you never would have gained some of the knowledge and the gifts that you have today.
0: So I went through a really brutal divorce twenty-some odd years ago, and I was having some serious health issues, which actually were related to me being in a toxic marriage. That's all the conversation. It literally manifested itself to me bleeding internally. So I was bleeding internally. My gastroenterologist was telling me, "Hey, man, if you don't get this under control, we're gonna have to cut up part of your intestines." Oh, and by the way, we think you might have cancer because we did a biopsy, and the tissues were. We're sending them out to the lab. That's when I realized I got to get out of this toxic marriage because this one's killing me. I'm letting her kill me, right? By the way, she wasn't killing me. I was allowing her to. And I was in a career, and I won't get into where I was, but I owned a company, and I was absolutely miserable. Made good money. Great money, absolutely, right? Fantastic. But I was absolutely fucking miserable. Miserable relationship, miserable marriage. hated my work, though I made a lot of money, and I I was kind of addicted to it because the money was great, but I I hated who I would become. And so... When I decided to exit the marriage, she, you know, I was dealing with my health issues. She screwed me in a way you can't be. And I basically lost everything. I got locked out of my house. Fun fact for for those of you who are married or think about getting married, if you have a joint account with your spouse, they can clean out all the money and you can't do shit about it. I find myself waiting to get the lab results of whether or not i've got colon cancer and i've been bleeding internally and i've just been locked out of my house and i don't have any money because i just uh, i thought i was done i thought we could do an amicable thing had plenty of money no she wanted all of it and i'm staying i wake up one morning on a friend's guest bedroom which is actually the the rottweiler's bed which is covered in dog hair in their futon i'm like what the fuck happened to my life so i went to the highest of highs in terms of financial i wasn't happy quote unquote, successful by society's, you know, standards of houses, I own the ranch and and I own the business to, to being locked out of everything and dead broke. And I, I've never been suicidal, right? That's not who I am. It's not in my makeup, but I was in a dark place. And I was like, well, fuck it. You know what? I looked at it as a way to redesign the life that I wanted. And that's how I got into technology because I've always been a tech geek anyway. And I reinvented my life. And I got my health back first and foremost and started having more fun and it started actually living my life. And I got off of all the meds. I was on a bunch of meds. Luckily the biopsies came back uh, benign and I was on three kinds of meds to stop the bleeding. And eventually I got off all that stuff, got off all the meds, got my life and started having fun again and just enjoying my life and create a life that I wanted to live. But I tell you, when you wake up on a dog hair covered futon in a buddy's place, it's not as intense as what you went through, by the way, right? But it's a wake call where you decide to figure out, all right, who do I want to be? And what life do I want to create for myself? And I think we should all strive to do that before we hit that proverbial rock bottom. Don't wait for that to happen to you to decide you're going to change your life. Figure out how am I going to change my life and create a life that I love now when it's easier, when I have my health. I do have somebody in the bank and I have a roof over my head. I absolutely agree. But for many of us, we kick the the
1: can down the road we just say oh i'll get by tomorrow i'll do it again i'll do it later it's not a big deal and then what do they say in boxing the punch that knocks us out is the one that we don't see coming so that's what it is if we're not prepared if we don't even have even a small idea of what we'll do as a contingency
0: when we get ambushed like it takes us out entirely it doesn't and, and you know part of that comes back to that phrase change before you have to because you know as humans we get we get used to being in a comfort zone and comfort zone you don't do anything. You don't move. You don't evolve. You don't grow. But that's dangerous. If you're not constantly evolving yourself and changing before you have to, to your point, that knockout, that's going to hit you when you don't expect it. Like for me, I was blindsided by the divorce because I, I thought I had an amicable, hey, look, this isn't working out. We're going to do fine. We got properties we'll split them up. And within 24 hours, she called the police on me to claim I hit her. I did. And of course, that's why the conversation. I'm like, what's going on? Like, well, you have 30 minutes to pack your belongings and leave. And I'm like, what? And I was like, this is funky. And I went down to the bank and they're like, oh, no, sir. There's no money in the bank accounts. So your life can change like that. Within 24 hours, you think you're great. And it can be not just that, financial divorce. It could be a car accident, your accident. You get a catastrophic illness. So you want to change before you have to. and then Which leads to creating a life that you love. Because part of the the life experience, and I saw in the book, Memento Mori, Remember, we will die. Part of the thing we have to remember when we're creating a life that we love is also enjoying the day to day. Because the only reality we have is right now. My conversation with you right this moment, you out there listening to the sound of my words, this is your only reality right now. What are you doing right now to enjoy your life, improve your life? Because we get so focused with the next. If, you know, I get the perfect job, my life will be happy. I get the perfect relationship, my life will be happy. I move to wherever the hell I'm uh, then I'll be happy. Bullshit. You have to learn to be happy here and now, because this is the only reality. Anything in the future is a fantasy. I'm not saying don't create something towards that, but you have to also live in the moment. There was also a
1: time after your father passed where you didn't have a male world model, but yet you're able to find one in a book.
0: Yeah. So speaking of how quickly your life can turn. So my father was diagnosed with lung cancer and, you know, he'd been sick for a while, actually. And, and again, this goes back to that old school. You have to be coughing up a lung before you actually seek medical attention. We had to say, dad, you got to get some help. Unfortunately, he'd waited too long. And from the time that he was diagnosed with cancer, to the time he died was 90 days. So it took him quickly. My dad was my hero. He was my first hero and I was lost and, you know, I was at school and, and I used to go to the library sometimes just for some quiet time, place of solitude. And I stumbled across a copy of the book Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And and for those of you who don't know, Marcus Aurelius was one of what's called one of the five great Caesars. He was a deep thinker. And Meditations is actually his journal, his diary, if you will, which makes it even more powerful because here are the words of a man who's arguably one of the most powerful men of the world at that time. It gave me solace and it made me realize, okay, I think I'm going to be okay. And then that book led to other books. And my male role models, I found in my reading, you know, I've got this library behind me and my, I'm in my home office. I've got four bookshelves here overflowing with books because I love reading, but they were my role models, my mentors, if you will. Unfortunately, I was in a situation where my father died. There's no life insurance. My mom said, I got you till you're 18. And after that, you're on your own, figure it out. And so the books that I read, starting with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and the other books, the subsequent books I read. And this is not me being dramatic, but I think they saved my life because I was in a very dark place. I didn't see a future. And if you don't see a future, then you're not going to get up and strive for something
1: better. I could talk to you forever. We've had all kinds of different subjects here. For a young listener who is wanting to lead, what is a piece of advice you would tell them to avoid? Because we hear a lot of bad advice repeated. And what would you tell them to start doing as their first steps right now?
0: Avoid toxic people. And I'm talking avoid toxic people on social media, avoid toxic people in your life, avoid toxic people in your family. And I, I know that's a tough one. The danger we, we can make as, as, especially if you're young, is follow the wrong people who will lead you to a really bad place. I would say read the classics, read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, read the books by the Stoics, and not, not someone's interpretation of it. Read the writings of James Bond Stockdale, who spent seven years as a POW in a Vietnam camp. Read books by people who suffered tremendous adversity. Because if you understand historically two things, people accomplish great things despite suffering tremendous adversity. Again, you know, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, is he lost, I believe, most of his family, except for his sister in a concentration camp. You will be able to find strength within yourself you didn't know you had. You will persevere in the darkest of times. And no matter what gets thrown your way, you will be able to keep. Putting one foot in front of the other. And that means everything. And eventually this too shall pass and you'll get to a better place and you'll realize, oh my God, I'm here. I didn't think I could do it, but I did it. And it'll mean all the difference
1: in your life. In entrepreneurship and leadership, you don't have to be the first. You just have to be the last. You have to be the last one willing to keep moving, to keep standing up, to get beyond, like you said, the feeding frenzy of the initial part of the pyramid when you move up. As you have more time, experience and get higher up there. Now You have more of the seasoning. Now you understand more. And now you understand it doesn't get easier, but you just keep putting one foot in front of the other. You accept the reality of it. You don't play a victim and you say, so what, what am I going to do? Am I going to quit? No. Then the only other option is to step forward. And when there's no other choice, the choice is simple. Amen to that. Where can we learn more
0: about you? How can we support you? Tell us more about it. If you're interested about being a leader, go to amazon.com, pick up a copy of my book. It's highly graded. The Wisdom of How Leaders. Yeah. Like- yeah, that's right. I sent you one of the very first copies. I was like, that's right. That's going way back. Signed edition and everything. Yeah. That's a long time ago. Pick up a copy of the book. It's it's a labor of love. It took me three years to assemble it. It's 500 pages. It's on, on 28 categories of leadership. Follow me on TikTok, Derek W. Johnson. Follow me on Instagram at, at Hardcore Leaders. And again, reach out to me, DM me. I'm happy to communicate and help in any way I can. And And I know very few people will, but For those of you who are serious and you reach out to me, I'm here to help. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Let's do it again, man. It was fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media.